Story One, The Flotilla at Bird Island, by Mike McClelland. It had been years since I'd last seen Bobby, but we hadn't lost touch. I'd always known, of course, that we would reconnect. He texted to see if I wanted to meet him for lunch the following day, an uncharacteristically informal reunion, so casual. I thought perhaps it was a prank, as Bobby wasn't the casual type. With Bobby, everything was worth the effort. The effort was usually significant and justifiably expensive. With Bobby, it was almost always expensive and most often absolutely essential. In college, we'd had absolutely essential martinis on a rooftop bar in Saigon, embarked on an absolutely essential hike to a hidden waterfall in Argentina, and we'd flown to Cape Cod to see an absolutely essential screening of Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey at the nation's last drive-in movie theater. Even the concept of lunch felt comically pedestrian for Bobby. Still, I replied, of course. That night, I dreamed for the first time in a while. Ours was not a time of dreaming. And such were these times that even the rarest, lightest dreams were filled with shadows. The sea is alien and endless. I'm alone on the water, surrounded by an assortment of unmanned vessels. It feels as if I've been sailing for an age, and I wonder if I really have lost everything. When we crest over a mountainous wave, and I see a fire in the distance, we drop, then rise again, and I see that the fire is, in fact, a lighthouse, towering over the great black sea. And beneath it, hundreds of boats are scattered, as if the lighthouse were a sycamore, and they its shiny silver fruit. I see, then, that I'm not alone. Other ships, boats, and submarines are making this voyage, too. I'm thrown off course by another wave, but then I watch the lighthouse light shift sharply left. I follow it, though this path makes very little sense, inches north, meters south, nearly a mile west, followed by a quick turn due east. It eventually leads me and my flotilla to a safe rest beneath the mighty lighthouse. Now landed on black-rocked shores, my legs buckle as I leap out onto the hard ground. Still, I run, flip-flopping on wet stone. I reach toward the lighthouse's massive stone door, but it has no handle, no knob, no wheel. I despair, throw myself against the door, and pound my fists against its surface, fearing that I will, in fact, be alone for eternity. Then the door rumbles open, and I smell salty air and hot, burnt pine. Warm light sneaks out, and I throw myself inside, hoping against hope. I run straight into a sturdy man, bathed in light, lines marking his face. I look up into this lighthouse keeper's face, years of isolation apparent in his tired expression, and watch it spark to life as astonishment fills violet eyes. The next day I met Bobby at a quiet, sullen 24-hour diner perched awkwardly on Ponce de Leon, the barrier between Atlanta's midtown and downtown neighborhoods. 
It was late May. The city slowed by the arrival of the hot summer sun, which had gone from oppressive to dangerous in recent years. The sidewalks released ripples of heat, and the streets smelled of burning asphalt, lined by the carcasses of long-dead trees. As I crossed Ponce de Leon, I saw a woman lift her dappled dachshund to spare the poor creature's burning paws. I kept away. I'd forgone my surgical mask, choosing instead to stay out of breathing distance of others. Perspiration trickled down my back, and my pale blue Oxford shirt began to stick to my skin. I willed myself to walk slowly to avoid showing up at lunch covered with embarrassing sweat marks. I'd forgone the easier, more popular fashions of the new coast, breathable, flowing jumpsuits and tunics with built-in UV protection. I wanted Bobby to see me as I had been, not diminished or changed by circumstance. Perhaps because we'd been pushed unwillingly into this new existence, society had yet to grapple with the embarrassments of the past that were now inevitabilities in the present. Though surely he'd be expecting a sweaty, seething Atlanta, it was hard to let go of past decorum, particularly in front of Bobby, who was not only pristine in appearance, but who I knew valued polish in others. When I reached the diner, I took a quick puff of my inhaler, hoping to avoid a coughing fit during lunch, then shoved it back in my pocket. A beggar sitting under an umbrella in the corner of the diner's parking lot must have heard the inhaler hit the change in my pocket and croaked out a muffled, wet, got any to spare, just as I grabbed the door handle. I glanced over at him, saw that his body was ravaged by the sun and by one of the many diseases that had appeared and flourished due to the rise of both ocean levels and temperatures. I could hear it in his labored breathing under his dirt-crusted surgical mask, see it in the telltale blistering around his eyes, nose, and mouth. I reached into my pocket, grabbed a few $1 coins, and tossed them his way. I didn't want to get close enough to share any air with him, but I empathized with his situation. I opened the door of the diner, slid off my gloves and pocketed them, then searched the room for Bobby. I saw his back, his confident but relaxed posture, his rusty hair, his oddly elegant neck. I slid into the booth across from him and caught his distinct, heavy-lidded gaze with mine. I was taken back rather suddenly to our first meeting. I'd been sitting in the sun, on the big lawn in the center of campus, studying for an exam of some sort, music theory, I think. The lawn was crowded, but quiet. I didn't see him arrive, but I heard him speak. His voice was unique, formal to an extent that would have been irritating on someone less vivid. Excuse me, fellow students. I've just discovered something, and it is absolutely essential that I show it to another person immediately he'd announced to the lawn. Everyone was looking up, but no one immediately volunteered. Bobby's eyes, striking but distant, hazy almost, found mine, and I raised an eyebrow. He raised one in return. I smiled and got up, leaving my bag behind. I knew I wanted to be his friend.
It's a bit of a slog, but I promise it will be worth the effort, he said, taking off at a brisk pace as soon as I joined him. Ours wasn't a huge campus, but it was hilly. I struggled to keep up with Bobby, who walked quickly but softly, as if he were floating an inch or two above the ground. Soon we reached a small, immaculately maintained garden. Presumably it was one of the places where the ecology students practiced their trade or that had been donated in the honor of a long-dead alumnus. Bobby pointed to the other side of the garden. Tell me, friend, do you see that? I looked to where he was pointing, and sure enough, there was an odd sight waiting. Then I looked back to him, saw his distinct face, and how hopeful it was. If nothing had been there, I would have lied, just to please him. Are you seeing a pack of goats? I asked, and then spotted something even stranger. With purple beards? Yes, he responded, and sounded relieved. Also, goats don't travel in packs. They travel in tribes, trips, flocks, droves, or most commonly, in a herd. I'm sure that will come in handy someday, I deadpanned. Searching for sarcasm, Bobby caught my eye, smiled, and clapped me on the shoulder. We're going to be great friends, he said. The story behind the goats was a relatively simple one. Apparently, the zoology, biology, ecology, and animal husbandry departments at the university had banded together with the school's landscapers and purchased a pack of campus goats that had been tasked with chomping invasive plants on campus. One such plant was the summer lilac, a lovely but overbearing plant that had been encroaching on the school's expensive memorial gardens. The purple beards had merely been stray lilacs, caught in their little goat beards. Bobby was older now, but no less striking. But his eyes were focused, a look I'd rarely seen on him. When he saw me, he smiled gently. You look good, Kyle, he said. So do you, Bobby. His smile remained, and his eyes were still present and linked to mine. I felt a sense of slightly curdled excitement, joy to be with him, and grim anticipation of how awful I would feel when it was over. Bobby and I had had our share of adventures together. When we'd first become friends, he'd said that my mystery had appealed to him. Then, shortly after that first goat-hunting encounter, he'd invited me to one of the themed parties he held in the old Victorian he lived in off-campus. The theme was Guy de Maupassant's short fiction, which might as well have been Martian geography to me. But after some research, I'd arrived wearing a giant necklace I'd found at a second-hand store. Upon entering his candlelit dining room, labeled the Jupiter Drawing Room for the party's purposes, I noticed that each guest had a different skin tone and accent than the next, all of them somewhat exotic for our university. Aside from Margot St. John, who was white as a sheet and whose voice had a flat Pennsylvanian timbre. But Margot had only one leg. Bobby didn't like to have any two of the same sort of friend, and I'd wondered if he changed himself to match each of us or if he remained constant throughout each encounter. 
At first, I'd accused Bobby of collecting me like the rest of his international assortment of friends, lovers, and confidants. But Bobby's attention was intoxicating. Like any intoxicant, though, it was suffocating, all-consuming, and occasionally terrifying. So many times I wondered if I'd imagined his interest, only for him to pop the bottle and make me drunk all over again. Sitting in the vinyl booth and staring into pale eyes, I felt unsure of him, but also bewitched. His appearance was magnetic, but extreme. He had rust-red hair that fell messily over his pale skin in sharp contrast to the severe planes of his face. He was lithe and long, and his severe confident posture belied his dizzily unfocused personality. All of this was the same as it had always been. However, there was something new about Bobby, and this was the most marked characteristic. He appeared truly, vibrantly alive. There was a shimmer to his skin, and his hair was unstyled and textured like a Labrador's summer coat. I wondered if Bobby merely seemed so vital to me because of the declining state of so many in my direct circle. Surely I, too, had begun to fade in the harsh sun and dirty air. Were my insides speckled and discolored from waterborne disease? Nearly everyone I encountered in Atlanta had suffered some sort of serious ailment recently. Pneumonia, unhealing sores, tumors, and worse, seemed as common as colds had been in the old days. It was simply a fact of our times. Super strains of bacterial diseases like cholera were flourishing in our hotter, wetter world, as were mosquitoes and their accompanying viruses. At least in Atlanta, we had the Centers for Disease Control, which developed a monthly cocktail of vaccines, vitamins, and other treatments to test on the populace, but which also led to overcrowding, which had in turn led to more disease. But the robustness of Bobby was more than a lack of illness. He was somehow an enhanced version of the Bobby I'd known before. My gaze met his once again. Perhaps his newfound focus, the clarity in his eyes, was a byproduct of whatever it was that was giving the rest of him such vigor. And I smiled, embarrassed and pleased all at once. What a pleasure it was to once again be in the company of such a great friend and to find him looking so well. How many friends had I reunited with recently only to find them diminished, graying, coughing, apologizing for deficiencies they weren't at all responsible for. His attire was impeccable, as always, and his modern, tailored, navy blue suit looked out of place in this corner of Atlanta. His pastel shirt matched his eyes. He'd dressed this way in our younger years as well, always above the rest of us, a blazing celestial object where the rest of us were just careening pieces of rock. Before, I'd been a moon, to his planet, exerting the slightest of gravitational poles, while still utterly in his thrall. I was boisterous by nature, but with Bobby, I was quiet and measured, happy to cede the spotlight. His mere presence in a classroom, at a party, or even in a dingy restaurant such as the one in which we sat, made those around him 
feel lucky. His mother had been a popular Swedish-American model who, along with his father, a New York gallery owner, had been killed in a train accident when Bobby had been just a boy. He'd inherited his looks from his mother, his appreciation for art from his father, and his money from both. In our younger years, he'd mentioned his past in much the same way most of us did, but his included frequent mentions of fabulous friends and acquaintances and voyages to far-off lands. Such details would have been intimidating in others, but Bobby told and lived such tales of adventure in a way where all the extravagant details simply seemed to fit. In the years I'd known him, He'd been the subject of a David Hockney painting that had sold to a Russian oligarch for more than $10 million. He'd rented the last above-water square meter of the former Maldives for a picnic lunch. And together, we had once found a colony of thousands of escaped parakeets while hiking the Appalachian Trail. And Bobby's unique skill in describing these events, at least to me, was that he refused to be encumbered by either humility or pomposity. His tales were thrilling, and their effect on me almost always spurred me onto my own adventures, either with Bobby or by myself. Our friendship had been one of complementary energy, where I derived pleasure simply from his company, even when in the presence of others. While I didn't have Bobby's financial resources— I had pursued my own dreams, carving out a place for myself in Atlanta's vital music scene. When I'd met Bobby, I'd set my sights on the practical pursuit of becoming a music teacher. Now, I was a professional performer, living my own dream, though recently I'd been feeling unsettled once again. And I wondered if Bobby's appearance might help push me toward whatever it was my subconscious was seeking. I can see you haven't stopped thinking everything to death, my friend. Bobby laughed. I noted how deep his voice had become. It had always had a dark timbre, but it resonated now, his laugh echoing off the walls of the diner. The waitress, a visibly fatigued young woman in a light blue dress and matching surgical mask, walked up and spoke directly to Bobby, not even flicking a glance my way. I wasn't offended. Though her mask concealed her mouth, I could see her smile in the scrunch of the deep lines around her eyes. He ordered two German Hefeweizens that certainly weren't on the menu. I didn't even think the diner served alcohol, but the waitress returned with two warm but abundant steins filled to the brim and clunked them down in front of Bobby with a wink. Bobby always did things like this, little ways of making everything just a tiny bit more special. No doubt he'd arrived early with a case of this beer and either tipped or sweet-talked the waitress into keeping it in the wings. You've got to try this beer, Kyle. It's absolutely essential. I smirked at him as he passed a beer over. Then he raised his in the air, the foam slipping over the edge. To back then, and what lies ahead, he said and I clunked my beer against his with a smile. So how have you been, Kyle? Really? Bobby asked after the waitress had delivered watery beige chicken salads to accompany the lovely light beer. I forked a wan yellow-brown tomato and replied, I'm doing well. I never thought I'd live in Atlanta, but it's a wonderful city. 
So many different people from all stations of life, and the music scene here, it's killer. I've been working nonstop, getting my name out there. I've been following your work, Bobby said. And I was touched. If only because I knew that Bobby usually only listened to symphonies and operas by long-dead musicians. Then he added, Atlanta seems to suit you. But something, perhaps disappointment, clouded his expression. It did, but the thing about music, about art in general, is that it is a comfort. Sure, it pushes the envelope, breaks ground, and inspires, all of that, but people in desperate situations turned to music to ease the pain, to distract, and even to provide some hint of what could come next. Transcendence. And that was increasingly my experience of Atlanta, which was the same, I'm sure, as the experience of friends in New York before the Atlantic rose up and swallowed them whole. As such, the opportunities were all here, right on the edge. There was no paying work in Nashville, Austin, or Pittsburgh. It was all here, on the new coast. Though I'm sure the work would appear in those places next, once Atlanta joined New York and so many others in the sea. I shook my head. I wasn't going to tell him that side of it. What about you? I asked, deflecting. You're looking so well. His eyes remained soft. The heavy lids of his eyes made it look as if he was in a constant afterglow, like he was savoring a cigarette after a particularly satisfying romp. Do you have a few hours free? He asked, pushing his salad away, making the hormone-stuffed chicken jiggle. I'd suggested this diner because it was one of the few places in the area that still had real meat on the menu, and I knew Bobby to be quite the carnivore. But I couldn't blame him for abandoning the meal. For you? Anything, I said. Come then. It will be worth the effort, he said with a wink. He tossed a few bills onto the table and headed for the door. The early afternoon air smelled burnt. Midtown was hazy this time of day, a mixture of smog and the experimental cocktail of chemicals the CDC pumped into the air to cut down on disease. I found myself wishing I'd suggested a more attractive part of town, not that there were many left. Bobby led me across Ponce de Leon to a shiny silver car, one so extravagant that I didn't even know the make or model. Is this yours? I asked, gaping at him. No, just a rental I flew in, he said. We sat in comfortable silence as Bobby drove onto the busy interstate and headed south. The highway rolled through several sections of the city that were suffering most. In other areas, pop-up clinics had helped contain disease, or at least slow the spread of it. Volunteers handed out sunscreen and erected tents in vacant lots to provide shade for those who needed to go out on foot. But down here, there were too many people and too few resources. At least, that was the excuse. Isn't that always the excuse? What is that? Bobby asked, gesturing to a mile-long line of people on a road below the highway. Vaccination line, I replied. The government says it distributes to every area at the same time, but they always seem to get to South Atlanta last. It's terrible. Those poor souls, Bobby said. 
sounding genuinely affected. I felt a little embarrassed, even irritated. What was Bobby doing to help out? What did he know about being black in Atlanta? Any frustration was hypocritical, of course. If I was so concerned, I would be down here helping, rather than playing around on my keyboard up in Midtown. Some days I felt like I was balancing survival with doing my human duty. But this was not one of them. Not as I streaked through in a shiny rental car with my rich friend. I calmed myself. The truth was I had no idea what Bobby was doing. The last time I'd seen him, he'd wanted company to an auction in Detroit. Works by one of his father's favorite artists, a Dutch woman named Gertrude Rogman, were on display. So he bought me a first-class ticket to Detroit, which had been a nightmare, but that's another story, taken me out for wine and lobster, and even purchased me a vintage croquet set I'd drunkenly taken a fancy to. We talked about old friends, about goals and dreams, but barely touched on all the death and sadness around us. We talked about my music. I'd been languishing in Memphis at the time. And about his travels. But we hadn't touched upon his work. Bobby didn't ask any more questions. Presumably the state of things was the same across the country though Atlanta was struck harder because of its status as a travel hub and its proximity to the new coast, which made it particularly susceptible to the constant wave of waterborne illnesses assailing the nation. We sat silently for a few moments, but curiosity trumped guilt and frustration as I asked, where are we going? You'll see, he said, and I feigned a sigh. Bobby liked to surprise and delight and I liked indulging him. A few minutes later, Bobby exited the highway at the airport. I raised an eyebrow. Don't worry, I learned my lesson last time. Last time had involved the airline disputing my first-class ticket. Since the person who had purchased it wasn't present, they'd had to call Bobby while I died of embarrassment. Then when I finally got onto the plane, it had been filled with coughing and wheezing, the flight attendant had assured us that she would close the curtain to coach, as if it was a class issue. But we were all sharing the same air. I hadn't brought any luggage, and thank goodness, because overhead bins had been eliminated to prevent head injuries. While I'd read about increased high-altitude winds, it wasn't until I saw the in-flight video, which explained the dangers of increased bumps, dips, and twists, that I regretted the decision to accept Bobby's invitation. I brought a mask to combat the air, but then the turbulence had been so awful that I'd had to take it off to throw up. They had an opening, so I rented some space in their hangar for my own plane. Your own plane? I asked incredulously. Yes, a justifiable expense, and we'll only be in the air for about 45 minutes. Bobby pulled the car into Spalding Aircraft, a chartering company. I was a bit dazed, but managed to follow Bobby to a small, sleek, dual-propeller plane. Along the way, he spoke to staff and signed forms. I didn't even need to offer so much as a driver's license. I heard him say the letters M-Y-R, but that meant nothing to me. Inside, the small plane was outfitted in soft beige leather. I sat across from Bobby in a seat that felt more like a lazy boy than the commercial airplane furniture I was used to. It's a quick trip, and 
worth the effort, I swear. I've got something to show you, he said. And I thought he'd smile or wink, but he didn't. Instead, he turned and stared out the window. Bobby almost always smiled or winked or appreciated being smiled or winked at when he used one of his catchphrases. But he quite suddenly retreated within himself, which wasn't a Bobby that I was used to. Perhaps these times had gotten to him after all. Takeoff was quick and relatively smooth, and soon we were climbing. I'd never been in such a small aircraft, and though the occasional bumps and jumps were more noticeable than they would have been in a bigger plane, I found myself relishing the peace and quiet, the filtered air, and Bobby's presence. He seemed to dominate the small plane, and once again, I'd felt like some sort of small object hitching a ride through space, caught in his orbit. So, can I ask where we are headed? I asked. North Carolina, he said, his face giving nothing away. Really? I asked. I had imagined our destination to be somewhere a bit livelier. Much of North Carolina had been abandoned due to rising tides and swarms of insects, and the few populated mountainous parts were home to fringe militias and religious communities. It doesn't sound that picturesque, I know, but our specific destination is actually quite lovely. Bobby laughed, as if reading my thoughts. The laugh didn't reach his eyes, however. At least, I hope you'll like it. Bobby squeezed my knee. He could have been taking me to an iron mine in North Dakota, and I'd have followed him to the very bottom. Below us, the brown-green of Georgia turned abruptly to sand, and then light, shallow ocean. I've always loved the ocean, Bobby said, staring out his window. I didn't know that about you, I said. With a chill, my dream came back, a giant, cold ocean, and me alone on it. I guess you wouldn't. Why didn't you come to the Maldives for that picnic? I wrote a whole speech about it. Had some great quotes from the Tempest in it. Margot quite enjoyed it, though not the trip itself. She was testing one of those running blades out for her leg, and it didn't really work in the sand. I blushed. I couldn't afford a trip to the Maldives before they sank. Bobby looked at me, surprised. I offered to pay for you. It's one thing to pay for a trip to Detroit, Bobby. But I'm not going to let you fly me the entire way around the world when so many people are... I stopped myself. I didn't want to tell Bobby how to spend his money. If he wanted to help people, good for him. If he didn't, that was his choice. But I wouldn't have him fly me to the Maldives or wherever when so many people were dying right outside my front door. I did, however... Still have that damned croquet set, which made me feel like a big hypocrite. When so many people are want, Kyle, dying, starving, boiling, the list goes on and on these days, doesn't it? I nodded. Bobby didn't often get offended, but I expected that he, that almost anyone, would be by what I'd insinuated. But Bobby seemed strangely emboldened by it rather than offended. A slight smile formed on his face, and his eyes focused once again. 
I could almost feel his energy increase. He looked like he was about to say something, but then turned to look at the ocean once again. I would have pressed, or at least questioned the strangeness of the entire scenario, but I was happy to have seemingly avoided conflict, and I was savoring the closeness to Bobby after we'd spent so long apart. I leaned against him. I wanted to ask if we could just fly a bit farther in this space in between. The landing was smooth. We exited the plane directly onto the runway. It was raised a few feet above the swampy ground and appeared to be new, built atop reclaimed or artificial land. I could smell that we were close to the ocean. There was a sloppy, vine-covered fence encasing the runway. Beyond it, abandoned gas stations and motels rose out of the water like the bones of long-dead metallic pachyderms. One of the still-standing signs read Myrtle Beach Motor Hotel, and it dawned on me that MYR stood for Myrtle Beach, which had been evacuated several years ago. The air here was humid, but fresh, and I could feel the sun on my skin without the gauze of smog, which made me feel strangely exposed, a prisoner released into society with little idea of how to adjust to life there. Bobby grabbed my arm. Kyle, I'm not going to force you into any sort of agreement you don't want to be a part of, but I would greatly appreciate it if you kept an open mind and didn't mention anything about what you see over the next few hours to anyone. Oh, you know me and my closed mind. Once I nearly refused to let a man talk me into taking a mysterious plane ride to an abandoned swamp, I said, trying to keep a straight face. Bobby's face remained serious, which was unusual when there was anything to laugh at, particularly sarcasm. You know you can trust me, I added. Nodding, Bobby led me to a small hovercraft, hurriedly fumbling for keys in his pocket. But once he found them and started up the craft, he slowly steered out of the boathouse and then began to meander eastward in gently looping arcs. Bobby navigated the waters as though he grew up on them, yet he didn't point out any landmarks. I wouldn't have thought Bobby, who moved with a sort of elegance, would look so comfortable behind any boat-type thing, but he was unnatural. We wove in and out of small pockets of a swamp that had formerly been Myrtle Beach and its surrounding towns. After a pleasant period of gliding over the water, Bobby turned to me. Look into the water, he said. I turned my eyes from his profile to see that we'd moved beyond Myrtle Beach and up into what had once been a more casual vacation destination. Abandoned wooden beach houses rotted into the water at a variety of angles, giving the horizon a geometric texture. Up ahead loomed a huge bridge, one of the many fossils of the old brand of American coastal life. I looked into the water and gasped. It was suddenly apparent as to why Bobby had been making loping, looping patterns in the water as the hovercraft hissed along. Manatees. But these weren't just any manatees. Long and round, they floated beneath our hovercraft with no apparent destination, floating and occasionally bumping like fat space rocks. 
These manatees lacked scars. I'd never seen, nor even heard of, a modern manatee without wicked propeller scars lining its back like the lashes of an angry whip. How are they here? I asked, looking back and smiling like a kid. They come for the food, Bobby said, smirking. Check it out. He reached over the edge of the hovercraft, which was just sunken enough for his long arm to graze the surface of the water. Bobby pulled out a handful of what appeared to be seaweed, which he lifted to his mouth and took an exaggerated, indulgent bite, his eyes watching me as he closed his mouth around the slimy plant. I laughed. I couldn't help it. Bobby laughed, too. Globs of seaweed flew out of his mouth. His perfect teeth were stained green. You try, he said, holding it out to me. I wanted to say no, but this was a dare, and Bobby knew I couldn't resist a dare. I took a pinch from his hand. The flavor was extraordinary. Memories of my childhood, fresh broccoli and tender, tall asparagus, a different time, naturally salted by the brackish water. The seaweed was seasoned and shockingly, implausibly fresh. I looked back to the manatees as they continued to float brazenly beneath us and wondered how anything could be so carefree in this world of ours. Then I glanced back to Bobby and wondered the same thing about him. The water beneath us was increasingly clogged with a variety of aquatic plants of shifting hues, green, purple, deep red, and light pink. The manatees moved through the silken plant life with ease, as did other creatures. Wait, are there otters here? I asked Bobby, after I saw a brown, feline-looking thing twirl past. Otters? Dolphins? Seals lots of fish, even some weird tropical ones that must have made it up from the Caribbean. One of the scouts even said he saw some kind of whale. I hadn't seen wildlife in years. I'd been to the new coast a few times, but most coastal wildlife, in the U.S. at least, had either died off or migrated toward cleaner, cooler water. Above us, the large bridge I'd spotted from a distance loomed, a green net hanging beneath it. Thousands of baskets hung from the underside, with a variety of black tubes, hoses perhaps, running among them. Bobby followed my eyes and smiled, though he returned his attention to steering. I knew very little about gardening before this, which I'm sure you find surprising, Bobby said, laughing. But apparently, there are a lot of vegetables that grow better in the shade. How many people do you feed with these? I asked, wondering if I'd read wrong, if perhaps Myrtle Beach had in fact survived. You'll see, Bobby said in a sing-song tone, clearly enjoying my reaction thus far. Once we passed under the bridge, Bobby turned the hovercraft and cut the engine, letting the current sweep us into a channel of water that flowed through the island on the far side of the bridge. This small tidal creek is called Mad Inlet, though the inlet part of it basically disappeared when the dunes crumbled. He pointed left toward some rotting houses sticking up out of the water, and that was Sunset Beach. Then he pointed to the right, to a reedy, swaying area that 
didn't look as if it contained any solid land. Instead, reeds and grasses billowed in the wind over warm, clear water. That's Bird Island, which my family has owned for many years, though that's a bit of a secret, he said. Bobby explained that he'd become the sole owner of these two square miles of marshy oceanfront land when his parents had passed away. Years ago, before I met you, Kyle, I sold the surface of Bird Island to the state of North Carolina. The public assumed that meant that the state owned the entirety of Bird Island, but the truth is that I still owned everything underneath. I've been building ever since, though I've only recently expanded to the surface. North Carolina technically still owns it, but no one comes here. The grass was so tall that it bent over us, blacking out the sun, and I became disoriented. I looked to Bobby, who appeared confident in our direction, and I was reminded of adventure tales, mythic ones, like Jason leading his Argonauts to the Golden Fleece. But then the grass grew even denser, and Bobby hunched, and I recalled Chiron and the River Styx. I hoped that whatever lay at the end of the boat ride was more magic fleece and less Hades. The air around us grew thicker, but the water got shallower allowing for glimpses of the sandy floor every now and again. We were presumably entering the area known as Bird Island. There was a tropical feel to the air, and beneath that, a sort of sublime mystery, an indescribable feeling that intensified as we moved along Mad Inlet. As I peered through the seagrass, I noticed small anomalies breaking the regular pattern of reeds and grass. I looked more closely and spotted an artichoke plant, its fruit as big as an old-time pear, ready to pluck. Next, a tomato, a red tomato, more vibrant than I'd ever seen. As I began to consciously seek them out, I noticed tens, then hundreds, then thousands of seemingly disparate plantings. A solitary squash here, a watermelon there all either ingrained in a small piece of land surfacing from under the water or in a floating soil-stuffed planter. How are you getting all of this to grow? I'm simplifying here, but we've relied heavily on hydroponics to grow plants here, which has resulted in some remarkable side effects, like healthy water and delicious seaweed. And why is it all mixed in with the grass rather than in rows? Bobby laughed. Edible landscaping, he said. First of all, it doesn't look like farmland from above, which helps us avoid detection. But it also keeps the wildlife from eating up all our crops at once. We want them to get something to eat, but we prefer to keep most of the produce for ourselves. And we've slowly started to learn that some plants grow even better with others than they do with their own kind. Kind of like people. I groaned. He laughed. Eventually we came to where the grass parted, and a narrow, sandy path rose gently out of the water, cutting into some dunes. Bobby hopped out of the hovercraft and leaned over to take off his shoes. I did the same, savoring the feel of sand beneath my feet. It had been so long. Too long. I followed Bobby along the path, He'd grown distant again, and 
I could only guess that it was this thing, place, person he was taking me to that was causing him to vacillate between focus and distraction. We were between two rather steep dunes, and as such could no longer see the water nor any of the abundant grasses and produce. But I could hear the roar of the heavy waves off to our left as they crashed against something, presumably Bird Island's remaining shoreline. The sound, coupled with the gray, undulating sky, closed Bobby and me in. We were alone, on our own planet. He turned, a surprised expression on his face, and held a finger over his lips, as if I'd been talking. Had I been talking? I pulled myself forward, looking over his shoulder to see what had surprised him. At first, it appeared to be nothing more than a shallow hole in the ground, like a pothole at the base of the dune. Then I noticed some dots in the sand leading out of the hole and up the side of the dune. I followed the dots and then saw what had surprised Bobby. Baby turtles climbing their way toward the ocean. They're loggerheads. Bobby said. We thought they'd gone extinct when the majority of the dunes collapsed, but it looks as if some survived. Can we help them? I asked, unable to hide my concern as another brave little turtle emerged from the hole. They'll make it. Then his eyes brightened. In fact, there aren't many birds left around here. All of the migration patterns went crazy when the temperatures increased. So these little guys have a Better chance than their ancestors did. Now, I caught on to his excitement. So, all of this shit we've been going through has actually helped them? I asked, watching the impossibly cute little critters with appreciation. Who knows? There could be turtles everywhere in a few years, Bobby said. After watching a few more turtles begin their ascent, Bobby led us to where the pathway ran straight into a large beach grass-crusted dune and forked around it into two separate paths. I wondered why I hadn't been able to see the dunes from a distance, then I realized that we were at a lower elevation. The dunes weren't dunes at all, or if they were, they were also dikes, holding the water back and allowing these pathways to exist slightly below sea level. From the sky, it would simply look like a small section of surviving land, and from the sides, it was concealed by cleverly planted ocean grass. Bobby hooked to the right, and I assumed we would be continuing, though I was still completely in the dark as to our destination. Instead of pressing on, however, Bobby turned toward the large dune and quickly adjusted his steps, it was disconcerting to see Bobby, who walked through life as if in a dream, display such quick, sharp movements, but he was defying many of the things I had come to know about him. Moving his feet until he was settled into the position he'd been searching for, Bobby punched forward into the dune. After a moment, the sand around his hand fell away. It crumbled inward, pouring in the familiar way that sand whisks through an hourglass into a dark opening. Within moments, a door-sized hole appeared in the side of the dune. Bobby casually motioned for me to follow him, and then turned and descended into the hole, which appeared to lead directly onto a downward staircase. I followed Bobby down the dark stairs. Blue-green floor lights illuminated the way, 
While they were dim, they at least allowed me to follow Bobby down the stairs without falling and breaking a bone. Our footsteps clunked, but didn't echo. The staircase was tunnel-like, the ceiling only about a foot overhead. Soon, we reached a metal doorway with an illuminated panel. I expected the panel to be a number pad for the entering of some sort of security code, but when I regarded it more closely, I saw that its buttons were symbols rather than numbers. From my vantage point, I could make out only a few. A boat, a sun, a volcano, a flower, and a medieval dragon. What are those symbols? I asked in a whisper. You don't need to whisper, Kyle. We're not breaking in, Bobby said, smiling, but didn't answer my question. Bobby casually reached down and began to press the symbols. I tried to follow along at first. I saw him hit the sun three times, then the dove, then the flower twice, then the dragon, then either the volcano or the flower, and then I lost track as his fingers flew up and down on the pad with increasing speed. After what must have been 30 button presses, the pad beeped twice, and the door made a light popping sound, like the opening of a bottle of soda. Bobby placed his hand in the center of the door and pushed. It went forward and up, hovering overhead until Bobby and I had both walked through, at which point it gently swung back down and hissed into place. We were in a massive cavern, brimming with life. To go from meandering along, just the two of us, to this was like being awakened from sleep with a bucket of cold water. I looked at Bobby, who looked a lot less relaxed than usual, and then back to the room. No, to call the space itself a room would be too restrictive of a description. It reminded me of a covered football stadium. However, it had to be even larger than that. And in that space, thousands of people walked around. Some leaning animals like cows and goats, others selling their wares from stalls. The walls were covered with huge trellises that contained an abundance of vine flora, grapes, roses, even peppers coated the massive walls. Songbirds fluttered among plants, their warbles combining with the hanging greenery to give the entire space the feel of a hidden forest oasis. The ground was covered in something sand-colored, but more textured, crushed seashells, perhaps. Conversation filled the area in a low, pleasing hum, and I could hear music, too, from multiple sources. I spotted a few familiar signs in the hustle and bustle such as a bright gold caduceus on a purple background hanging above one distant area, and a red-blue-and-white barber's pole sticking out from a purple-countered stall. Though there was an obvious focus on nature, between livestock and the various stalls of vegetables, fruits, and even flowers, more exotic breeds than what grew on the walls, there was also technology. People used smartphones, children toyed around on handheld gaming devices, and several of the stalls had conveyor belts. One even had a hologram, a puppy wagging its tail at those who stopped to say hello. We were still slightly elevated as the door led onto a staircase, but it appeared that the space was entirely flat, except for stacks of glass rooms, greenhouses perhaps, in the far corners. Welcome to Bird Island. Bobby said, watching my face closely. 
I had so many questions, and I wanted to explore, to interact, to live among these people. I was struck by how international the populace appeared. No one race or ethnicity was predominant. I thought back to college, about how Bobby had seemed to collect different friends. Yet when I looked out on this group, I didn't see hand-plucked exoticism or curated diversity. I saw real humanity. And I realized that Bobby had evolved. The one thing that truly linked them all was that, like Bobby, every person I could see was abundantly, almost unbelievably, alive. How is everyone so... I started, but I couldn't think of how to phrase it. If I'd built what appeared to be an underground utopian society, I'd want to be asked detailed questions. But Bobby smiled deeply. Apparently, he understood. Alive? The people. They look like people used to look. Better, even. There are full, colorful faces, bodies of different heights, shapes, and sizes. They smile. Even in this world, our flooding, burning world, everyone can still live, or at least have the chance to live fully. Every person who comes to Bird Island receives an individually tailored wellness plan. The medicine they need, the exercise they need, the diet they need, and the technological assistance they need. When he said, every person who comes to Bird Island, I suddenly grew a bit uneasy. Did he mean me? How long was I expected to stay? Could I leave? I looked up at him and caught his eyes, which were now violently bright. I trusted him. Unfortunately, he said, we don't have much time. What do you mean? I asked. Is there a problem? You've seen the outside world, Kyle. I looked at the people walking through the Bird Island marketplace. They all glowed in comparison to me. And the smiles. I hadn't seen this many smiles outside of a film. Some of them glanced at me, and I expected them to lose their smiles, to grimace, to see an outsider spoil whatever it was that was going on here. But they didn't. There was a confidence to the people here, and that confidence bred openness. Bobby led me around the edges of the marketplace. Everyone seemed to know Bobby, but no one bowed or cried and screamed. He didn't seem like a cult leader, a good sign. Each person acknowledged me too, but I was used to this. People had always been nicer to me when I was with Bobby. He walked quickly, not stopping to speak to anyone, though he smiled and nodded cordially at everyone who crossed our path. Eventually, we reached one of the stacks of glass rooms, which weren't rooms at all, but rather parts of a massive elevator shaft. Another panel, much like the one that Bobby had used to get us into this place, was on the wall. He hit a stream of buttons, adorned with the same symbols I'd noticed before. What are those symbols, Bobby? I asked. Oh, I didn't want to ruin the reveal of the city by telling you about the alphabet, he said, and then laughed. You made a freaking alphabet? And a city? Here I was telling you all about how well my music was going, and you left out that you were busy with, what do you even call this? We have a linguist who came up with a sort of hieroglyphic-based alphabet, 
he continued, ignoring me. I must say I'm not entirely sold on it, but given we're a very international group, it was worth the effort, at the very least. An elevator, presumably prompted by the button pressing, descended, and the large glass doors rolled open. After you, he said, and followed me into the large compartment. This goes up to the surface and down to the other levels, which contain everything from a hospital to a library to living quarters, Bobby said. But I'm taking you all the way to the bottom. The doors hissed shut, and we began to descend at a rapid pace. I watched Bobby as we were lowered further into the earth and felt even more distant than before. Fatigue appeared to be setting in, lines suddenly visible around his eyes, a slight slump to his shoulders. It was a little bit of a relief to see that even this new and improved Bobby got tired like the rest of us. As we descended, I thought back to the plane when I'd implied that Bobby should be spending his money on helping people. He had brightened then because that was what he was doing all along. But is it good to build another world rather than save our own? My thoughts were interrupted when the elevator stopped and the doors opened, revealing a space identical to the one that had housed the market, except that this space had no other people. Instead, there were a dozen massive silver spheres, each the size of a large suburban home, evenly spaced throughout the room. Each was held in place by a small docking station on the floor. I'd survived rising oceans and scorching skies. I had just done a pretty good job, in my own humble opinion, of processing my old friend's secret underground society. But this was approaching my limit. What is this? I finally asked Bobby, who was standing back, observing me. He smiled, not a smile of happiness, but rather one of relief. The bouts of silence, the distance, they were in anticipation of showing me these things. This is my flotilla. I hadn't heard the term flotilla in years. I had a quick spike of memory of a vintage game my dad showed me, of a character from outer space commanding a flotilla of ships after her home planet was destroyed. It was an anachronistic word, not a casual one. Bobby, it's time to tell me what the hell is going on. I turned and planted my feet, refusing to even look at the spheres. I needed him to be up front with me before I went any further down this rabbit hole. Bobby nodded. I know we've spoken of spirituality in the past, but are you religious, Kyle? He asked quietly. Uh-oh. Now it was Kool-Aid time. You know me, Bobby. I do a lot of yoga, I said, feeling stupid for trying to lighten the mood while standing in the sub-basement of a secret society. Can I tell you a secret? He whispered. Of course, I said, and looked around for effect. Duh. Bobby didn't laugh. I've been having visions. He was waiting for a reaction, I think, but I did not know how to respond to this. Did I know Bobby well enough to know whether he was sane? I thought back to our first encounter when he'd asked about the goats. Tell me, friend, do you see that? He'd been relieved 
that I'd seen them too. Had he been worried even then that he saw things that weren't really there? After a moment, he continued, I don't know if they are real or a symptom of my imagination caused by the data I've been reading day after day for years, or if it's simply a symptom of being raised in a dying world. But my visions, these recurring dreams, have always been of one event, a disaster. The world floods. I breathed deeply before responding, considering my words carefully. Bobby, the world has flooded. I thought of the millions of homeless, the thousands dying every day from new, inescapable diseases. I know, Kyle. But it is going to get much worse before it gets better. I'm talking about a huge, world-ending flood, and my vision, he seemed to be searching for the right words, my dream tells me I have the power and means to do something to save as many as I can. His words reminded me of a dream of my own, from the night before, of a giant flood, of being alone, surrounded by unmanned vessels. Had I really only just dreamed it the night before? Or had I been dreaming it forever? So, I've created Floodproof vaults, time capsules, and underground zoos. Some of them will survive the cataclysm. But this flotilla, it is the most important. I thought again to our first encounter, about how I would have told him I'd seen whatever it was that he'd seen, no matter if it was there or not, just to make him happy. Okay, show me. I followed him to the closest of the spheres. On closer inspection, I could see that the sphere wasn't a solid object, but instead was created by swirls of interlocking metal and stone. It gave the sphere an almost brain-like appearance, and the lines between the coils, while sealed, suggested that the sphere could be opened. It looked simultaneously ancient and new, a technological and archaeological marvel. What's inside? I asked, tentatively touching the sphere's cool metal. I looked over my shoulder to see Bobby a few paces behind me, looking nervous. Each holds a set of materials for making a place like this one. Seeds, embryos, money, contacts, digital files. Like an ark, I said, turning back toward the sphere in curiosity. Bobby approached me from behind. I could see his reflection, nodding, beautiful though warped, in the sphere's coils. He didn't speak until he was close enough to make the metal fog. I knew I should think this crazy, but Bobby felt more alive, more tangible than he had ever felt to me before. Was this why his dreaminess, his lack of focus, had faded away, replaced by clear-eyed intensity? I knew then that he was going to ask me to do something. The feeling came quickly. And instead of feeling used, I felt light. I was relieved, somehow, to know his intentions. I need you to captain this flotilla, Bobby said. You've seen me try to sail, Bobby. Is that a good idea? I asked. Humor, poor humor, 
my last defense. Then in a whisper, a croak even, I asked, Have you seen me doing this? I was embarrassed to even ask such a question. No, he said. But his words didn't ring true. His confidence appeared to falter then, for maybe the first time ever. I only know that I'm not the one to do it. You know who made the world the way it is now, he asked. Rich white guys. I knew it wasn't the time for another joke, but the mood was almost suffocating in its heaviness. <laughs> Bobby barked. Well, maybe a bit. Did I ever tell you how my father got the money to open his gallery? This is what he wants to talk about now. Um, no, I said. I just assumed he came from a long line of art gallery owners or bankers. No, Kyle. His father made a fortune dumping toxic waste. He developed a method of extracting and transporting it from factories, power plants, and other waste-producing entities. But rather than find somewhere safe to deposit the waste, he simply purchased large blocks of cheap, abandoned land, places in the mountains, in the desert, and by the sea, and dumped it there. Places like Bird Island, I asked. Bobby smiled, pleased that I made the connection. Bird Island was his last purchase before he died, so he was never able to dump anything here. So I thought, what better canvas to start with than this? He continued, Now I'm not saying that toxic waste alone ruined the world, but I do think it is one spoke on a huge wheel of destruction, and I've spent my life reaping the benefits of that destruction. He paused, stricken in a way that made him look older and younger all at once. I want to atone, he said, whispering now. But why can't you atone by leading everyone to safety? Why choose me? Because I don't deserve it. But you do. Why on earth would you think that? I asked. Until moments before... I'd never seen Bobby lack confidence. Now he was plummeting. I just told you. Everything I have, what I've done, is built on destruction. I can't bear it. What about your mother's money? Just pretend that's all you've been spending, I said. Bobby just stared at me. His perfect lips parted in surprise. Then he laughed uproariously, which echoed off of the silver spheres. I spoke again, and even though the mood had lifted slightly, I tried to be gentle. None of us, especially now, should feel responsible for the sins of our ancestors. He sighed gently. On some level, I know that. But since the first days of Bird Island and of the flotilla, I've known that something this fragile, this special, this important needs to be led by the very best person I can imagine, and that's always been you. It was a lovely statement, and at another time, it would have been quite touching. In fact, there had been times when I would have done anything to hear Bobby say something like that. But now I didn't know if what he thought about me had more to do with how he thought about himself than anything else. Where will you be? 
I asked. My mind was whirling. I need to keep raising money. That's what I'm good at, getting money from people. Saving the world is justifiably expensive. I laughed. This was the first thing he'd said in a while that made complete sense. I've had a lot of success so far, as you can see from Bird Island, but if we're going to survive, I need to persuade more investors to join in. And how will you persuade them? I watched Bobby smile wearily in the reflective circle, the coils of the sphere making his tired grin clownishly huge, foreboding somehow. With hope, as cliched as that sounds. Bird Island started with the same resources that you'll find in any one of those spheres. Yet every person here, all 20,000, has a life expectancy that is at least 50% longer than the average person living in a major metropolitan area. That would surely spur some investment. But what was it that Bobby had that all of the other people, the politicians, the humanitarians, the saints, and the martyrs, didn't? It wasn't money alone. Or visions, if those were even real. And what did I have that made him think I could lead in his absence? There are very few absolutes in life. One, for me, was that I would do anything for Bobby. That had been the case when I'd sat down in the diner, though I hadn't known it yet. And maybe that is what it takes to save people. Or at least, to grow rather than just survive. Nothing more than devotion to a true and constant friend. Well, maybe slightly more than that. In Bobby, my devotion was matched with belief and action. I wasn't sure whether his dreams were visions or prophecies or anything of the sort, but I was sure of him. How could I not be? Bird Island was a testament to his abilities. And what could I bring to Bird Island, to the flotilla? I thought back to my beloved Atlanta, of how music and art and play provided joy even as the new coast disintegrated. I could give that to these people, and to whomever we would find on the other end of the flotilla's journey. In Atlanta, I'd been expecting things to get worse, expecting to survive the future rather than build it, just as I had in my youth when I'd planned on abandoning my dreams before I'd even started. Then Bobby had come into my life and inspired me to pursue another path, here he was again, and the only choice I had to make was whether to believe him, to believe in him. Then it came into my head, like an old song springing up to remind you exactly where you'd been when you first heard it, except I'd just heard this song for the first time only hours before. It was my dream from last night, myself with the flotilla drifting across mile-high waves, the ice, and then finally the lighthouse, and its keeper, Bobby, and his violet eyes. I'll do it, I said. He smiled in response, which I saw reflected in the sphere. You'll help, you'll captain. Of course I will. Let's go back up, Bobby said putting his arm over my shoulder and gently squeezing. I could feel his appreciation, but also his profound fatigue. I want to show you something. 
We returned to the marketplace, and it felt different, more mine than it had before. Was I that easy to persuade? Bobby returned to the panel he'd used to call the elevator, clicking another impossible-to-follow sequence of symbols. Bobby clicked one last button and then said, Kyle, look, the sun's coming out. Though we were indoors, I instinctively looked up. The ceiling of the giant space was parting. It rolled open, and as it did, it revealed the same water I'd stared into from the boat, but from below. Bright sun lit it from above, and I watched otters swim through seaweed like birds through branches, watched giant fat manatees float through the air like zeppelins. A school of fish, sunshine pink and shimmering, glided by, casting a shadow across the marketplace below. I looked at Bobby, whose violet eyes were watching me, and I realized that this was the future he wanted for all of us. More important, this was the future I wanted for all of us, one that I didn't know was possible, a future where we could stop to feel the sunshine fall on our faces. I watched the manatees for a few minutes and felt a lightness that I hadn't felt in quite some time, probably since the first coastal cities had been evacuated. Before then, even, when we entered an age of hopelessness and greed. How long had we been suffering? Had we always been suffering?